0: Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. What does Jesus' mission look like here? What's his mission here? What does Jesus' mission look like here? What does Jesus' mission look like here? What is Jesus' mission here? How do I know what Jesus' mission is? Well, good morning. Good to see you today. Uh, My name is Josh, one of the pastors here. And uh, it's just good, good to see you. And if you just, so if you don't know me, that's who I am. Pastor Dave is uh, out of town today. His uh, daughter, Natalie, graduated from IU this weekend. And so they're down celebrating that. And uh, so you can encourage, encourage uh, he and Chris when they get back to a pretty exciting time for them in their lives. Uh, Discovery class, Mike mentioned tonight, there's still time to sign up. So if you're interested in learning more, getting some free pizza, Maybe you're just hungry. Uh, Five o'clock tonight, join us, and uh, we'll be just out in the commons. It'll it'll be a good opportunity for you to ask questions or learn more about our church. And uh, the Thrive Bunch, so many good things going on. Engage Sunday coming up, um, parent-child dedication next week during the second service. Just so many good things that God's doing. And uh, I'm excited about all of those. Well, today, we're in Acts chapter 12. We're gonna finish, uh, finish chapter 12 in the book of Acts. And uh, we're in this series working through the book of Acts. And uh, today we're gonna to talk, we're gonna see the example of a guy named Herod and in his pride, how uh, he suffered for his pride. And for all of us, how God calls us not to be proud, we're gonna unpack what that means, but to be proud humble, and how he wants us to be humble. It reminds me of the story of a pastor who was leaving his church after um, a number of years there and going on to another opportunity, and uh, there was a woman after the service, when it was announced, she was crying, and she came up and standing next to him, and she was just weeping, and he said, oh, it's going to be okay, and he put his, put his arm around her shoulder, and he goes, I, I know God's going to have somebody a lot better than me for this church after I leave. And she kept crying and she looked at him. And she goes, that's just it. The last three guys all said that and everyone keeps getting worse. <laughs> God, God has a way of bringing humility to us, doesn't he? Well, with, with that in mind, let me pray. And then uh, we're gonna be in Acts chapter 12 this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus who uh, is our humble king. The one who uh, took the form of a servant, humbling himself, taking the place that you had assigned for him and knowing it and living it perfectly. Help us to have that same mind, Lord, in us. Help me to have that same mind in me. And uh, as we look at the example of Herod, uh, knowing that everything you've written, Lord, is for us, uh, for our good and for our benefit. So an example for us to learn from. So help us learn from it today and uh, help us kill our pride and have joy. Lord, we love you. Thanks that you loved us first, and thanks for Jesus. We pray all this through him. Amen. Well, if you got your Bible, you can turn uh, with me to Acts chapter 12. And while you're doing that, I'm gonna get my, my slides up here so I can uh, see where I'm headed. Um, Acts chapter 12 this morning, and we're actually going to start in verse 20, but before we do, I thought it might be helpful just to, to recap a little bit of, of where we've been. Uh, last Sunday, we covered the first 19 verses of Acts, and we saw the Apostle James beheaded by Herod. Then we saw the Apostle Peter thrown in prison by King Herod with the intent that he was going to do the same thing to him as he had done to James. James. Now, if you weren't here, I mentioned, uh, you know, you see all these Herods in the New Testament. Sometimes it gets confusing because Herod is really just a kind of a title. It means heroic or a son of a hero. And so like when Jesus was, uh, was a toddler and a baby, it was Herod the Great. And remember, he tried to kill Jesus in Bethlehem and he ended up murdering all of the little boys, two years old and under in Bethlehem at that time. Uh, Well, this Herod is Herod Agrippa I. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. So that gives you a little bit of perspective, a little farther down the road here. But but last week, we saw that uh, even while James ended up being beheaded and murdered, God, for whatever reason, decided to intervene in the life of Peter. And uh, he rescued him miraculously from prison and freed him. And, And we saw last week that in the face of the impossible, God is always able to intervene and do the impossible. Well, after Peter's escape, we we read this about Herod. He went looking for him, uh, but he couldn't find him. And when the day came, the day came when he was gonna execute Peter, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter because he had escaped. You can imagine uh, how crazy that was. And after Herod searched for him and couldn't find him, didn't find him, he examined the sentries, the guards, and he ordered that they should be put to death because if, if, uh, if you lost a, a prisoner that you were a guard of, well, whatever their fate was going to be now becomes your fate in Roman law. So they were executed. But then uh, Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Well, all the events last week happened in Jerusalem. And uh, what we see is after all of this, Herod took off from Jerusalem and he went down Caesarea. Now you might look at that map and say, hold on, he didn't go down, he went up. That's north. Just remember, in in the Bible, they, they think a little differently in that day. And so down isn't down according to a map, like up and down for us, but it's down in elevation. And Jerusalem's on a mountain, Caesarea's way down by the sea, he went down to Caesarea. And the reason he went there is that was the Roman capital of the province of Judea. And he was the Roman governor, the king of that area under Caesar. So he leaves Jerusalem and he heads down to Caesarea, and uh, that's where we're at this morning. And as we continue in Acts 12, I want to plant this seed in your mind Uh, God opposes the proud, He opposes the proud. Uh, those are his words, not mine. We'll, we'll see that in a moment. And as I mentioned, even as I was praying, you know, God's word is written to us. It's, it's, it's to help us know God and to live as his people. And every narrative, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, is there for our benefit. So when we see this, this story, we're gonna look at this morning of Herod and what happened to him. Uh, it's interesting for sure. It gives us some history for sure, but it's there for us to teach us, to change us. So keep that thought in mind, God opposes the proud. So with that in mind, uh, let's look at Acts chapter 12 and unpack it. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are also small little towns along the Mediterranean Sea just south of Caesarea and uh, they were self-governing cities. So they kind of were little city-states. They, they ruled their own affairs, but they, uh, while they were self-governing, they were economically dependent upon Judea, over which Herod reigned. And so uh, we don't know what the nature of their argument was and what the problem was, but Herod was not happy with these people. And evidently, it was a threat to their economic security. So they came to him with one accord, And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, by the way, that's the coolest name in the Bible, Blastus. Doesn't he sound like an American gladiator? Like I just picture him standing, guarding Herod with a tennis ball cannon. Like that's Blastus, right? That's him. And Blastus, he was like Herod's personal assistant, the king's chamberlain. And so they go to him. You might think of it like his chief of staff. And they go to him and they ask for peace because their country, their cities, uh, depended on the king's country for food. They needed, they needed him. And so on the appointed day, an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and he took his seat upon the throne and he delivered an oration to them. Well, um, what's curious is uh, maybe have you ever heard of a guy named Josephus? Maybe you've heard that name and you're like, who's that guy? He doesn't show up in the Bible. But you maybe have heard me mention him even or read about him if you've read things about scripture because Josephus was a Jewish priest. He was born in AD 37, a few years after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And uh, he grew in stature so much that he became a statesman for the Jewish people. He was given uh, Roman citizenship by the emperor uh, Vespian. And uh, he became a historian that has been so essential in our understanding of early Judaism and early Christianity. And he wrote about all, he just wrote prolifically about history in those early days. He even mentions briefly Jesus and John the Baptist and other, other historical figures from the New Testament, uh, really giving credibility to the New Testament. Well, what's curious is Josephus in his writings actually records this event from Acts chapter 12. He records the same event. you know, we just read that on an appointed day, uh, Herod was gonna meet with the, the residents, the, the council from uh, Tyre and Sidon, and he put on his royal robes and he took his seat on the throne and he delivered an oration to them. And, the, and then we read this, and the people were shouting, the voice of a God, not a man. Well, Josephus gives some kind of interesting color to all of this. Let me just read to you a little bit of what he writes. He says, now, when Agrippa, Herod Agrippa, when he had reigned for three years over all of Judea, he came to the city of Caesarea. And there he exhibited shows and games in honor of Caesar. He had these festivals in honor of the Roman emperor of Caesar. And... uh, at, which fest, at, at one festival in particular, a great multitude was gotten together for the uh, principal reasons and, and people throughout, of great dignity throughout the province, he goes on to write, would come to these festivals and to these games. And at one in particular, uh, when he would go out, he would, he would go out early in the morning at which time uh, he would put on his, uh, his, his uh, kingly garment made wholly of silver And when he did that, uh, early in the morning, the the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it shone out in, in a surprising manner. It was so resplendent, Josephus writes, as to spread a horror over those who looked intently on it. And presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place and one from another. Though it wasn't for his good, they were trying to flatter him, he says. They were crying out that he was a god. And then they added, oh, be merciful to us. Well, why? Well, because they were dependent on him economically. For although we have hitherto reverenced thee only as a man, yet we shall henceforth own thee superior, as superior to mortal nature. So Herod uh, comes out, and I don't have uh, kingly garments, but I do have a blanket from the glove box of my car. And Herod comes out, and he's dressed in his silver garments and he shines from the sun and he looks like a God and everybody starts chanting to flatter him, oh, the voice of a God, the voice of a God and he just kind of soaks it in. He doesn't correct them, he doesn't stop them. He just says, yeah, I am pretty good, aren't I? How about a little more? And that's Herod. Well, you can imagine. uh, What did we say about uh, God's relationship to the proud? He opposes the proud, right? He opposes them, we read in Scripture. Well, let's look at God's response. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck Herod down because he didn't give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Here's how Josephus uh, references this event. He goes on and he says, uh, uh, they were saying that he was a God and they added, be merciful to us. And upon this, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. But as he presently afterwards looked up, he saw an owl sitting on a certain rope over his head. And he immediately understood that this owl, this bird, was the messenger of ill tidings. And he fell into the deepest sorrow. A severe pain also arose in his belly, and it began in a most violent manner. And he goes on to say that... uh, Herod got up and said a few things, and then left. And uh, he was in such pain, writhing pain, as he was speaking. People said he's not—he's not long for this world. And within five days, he was dead. Uh, we don't know exactly what—we're not told—but could have been some kind of tapeworm that basically just ate him from the inside out. God opposes the proud opposes the proud. And Herod clearly was proud. I mean, the people were shouting, the voice of a God, not a man, and the Lord struck him. He struck him with this illness, and he died. See, uh, it kind of just begs the question then, what what exactly is pride? If God opposes the proud, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be proud. (laughs) Look at the example of a guy like Herod. And how God opposes pride. You know what the problem is though? We all tend to default towards being proud. (laughs) That's the struggle. And here's how I'll define pride for us this morning. Pride is self-worship. It's self-worship. It's it's worshiping yourself. You're like, hold on, I don't do that, Josh. Well, uh, let me unpack it a little more of what I mean. Uh, when I say pride is self-worship, it's thinking about and esteeming yourself, whether in highways or low ways, more than anyone else or any other thing. How do, we, how do you define worship? Worship is, uh, some have said it comes from the old English word worth that it's ascribing Worth to something. So when we sing and we worship together on a Sunday morning, and as we go about our lives uh, trying to honor Christ in our lives, we're we're expressing we're ascribing worth to Jesus, right? Well, worship—it's ascribing worth. Well, self-worship then is uh, literally, I think you could say, it's ascribing a miscalculated worth to yourself. Pride is self-worship where you ascribe a miscalculated sense of worth to yourself. Note that definition because a lot of times when we think of pride, we tend to think only in terms of guys like Herod. You know, he's got his, he's got his thermal blanket on and he's shining and he's excited about who he is and he's soaking all this up with great pride. Pride miscalculating his sense of worth as being higher than it really is, thinking and just just accepting worship as a God. A lot of times when we think of pride, that's what we think of, isn't it? Oh man, that dude's got such an ego. He is so proud. Oh, I can't stand that woman, right? You ever felt that way? But the flip side of that is also true. When I find myself in a mode of self-pity, or, uh, or depression, you know that's a, that's a reality of pride also. It's ascribing a miscalculated worth to myself. Whether it's high, like Herod, or whether it's low in the pit of self-pity. On the high end, Herod gets eaten by worms. On the low end, you start singing to yourself, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, guess I'll go eat worms. <laughs> right? But you know, neither of those two assessments of yourself are true. You're not higher than God, like Herod tended to think. And you're not on the level of worms either. You're actually humbly honored above every other creature in creation. You and I are created in God's image. And he loves you, he values you, he, he sees great dignity and worth in you and in your life, whatever direction that's taken. And you have incredible worth to him. But notice it's all in relation to God. And Herod's miscalculation was keeping God completely out of the picture. And sometimes for me, my miscalculation, when I find myself in myself, like in that self-pity mode, right? I too have a miscalculation of my worth to God. And both are pride and, and God opposes the proud. Now that might sound harsh. You're like, so Josh, what are you saying? I mean, I get it that he would oppose the proud of a guy like Herod, but what about when I'm, you're saying when I'm down, God opposes me? Well, I think uh, he does oppose our pride for sure but I think he does it in relation to where we're at right? Like, so with a guy like Herod he's going to go after you or me if, if we're proud in that way and he's going to kind of he's not going to make any bones about knocking us down to, to get our attention you do understand but when, we, when he finds us in the, the mode of pride where we're, we're pitying ourselves and, well then he comes alongside us like a good dad and a good dad does both of those things doesn't he? He kind of gets in your face when, when you're too, prou- too proud in a, in a high ego way and he comes alongside you when you're proud in just a, a low self-pity way. He comes gently alongside us in those cases, like he did, by the way. If, if Herod's our example, maybe of one example of God opposing the proud who thinks too highly of themselves, uh, God's interactions with Elijah are an example of him coming alongside those who are proud, thinking too lowly of themselves. Elijah, the servant of the Lord, in uh, I think it's 1 Kings 17, somewhere in 1 Kings, I might have that reference wrong, I didn't jot it down. But he has, um, he has come off just this incredible ministry success, opposing the prophets of Baal, and then he takes off running, afraid of Jezebel, and he runs, and he runs, and he runs, and he, runs, and he hides, and he gets to the point where he says, God... Kill me now. I mean, he's on the the doorstep of suicide. He really is. And God comes gently alongside him. He feeds him. He nurtures him. He helps him sleep. He gives him rest, and he just whispers the truth to him. When God opposes you then, in either case, it's not out of hatred for you and I. It's out of love for us. That's why he opposes the proud, because he loves us. And he wants us to to not think too highly of ourselves and and get all out of whack like Herod. And he also wants us to to know how valuable we are, though, to him, and then to live in that freedom. And and ultimately, uh, I didn't finish the sentence, did I? God opposes the proud, but what's the second half? But he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. You know, this phrase shows up in a few different ways and a few different, uh, a handful of times in scripture. And one that comes to mind right away is in James chapter four. Uh, James, uh, Jesus' little brother, he's writing this. He says, Do you suppose it's to no purpose the scripture says he yearns jealously? over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us see God's love for you in opposing you and I when we're proud is because he's jealous for you he loves you and he doesn't want to see you in that spot see he yearns jealously over the spirit he's made to dwell in us and he gives us more grace therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He longs for us to be humble. So what's humility? What's humility? Uh, Well, humility, if pride is self-worship, humility is knowing your place. It's knowing your place. like, Like, again, humbly honored, right? Below God, but humbly honored above all else in creation as one who bears his image knowing your place. And this applies really to any definition of humility, right? It applies to your role before God. It applies to your roles before people. You know, maybe there's people in authority over you and being humble is simply knowing your place. Not shrinking from who you are in Christ, but, but knowing, hey, they're in authority. I'm gonna honor them and respect them and follow them so long as they don't lead me in a path that uh, makes me oppose God, you see? And it also means that if I'm in a place of authority, maybe I need to, to lead in a way that God would lead with humility and, and step into that role and not, not shy away from it because that's my place. Yesterday, uh, King Charles was crowned king officially, right? He had all the pomp and circumstance. He had his scepter. He had his orb of something. I don't remember. There was a certain name for it. His golden orb... I'm gonna get one of those for my desk. <laughs> but here's, here's what King Charles said, actually, when he was Prince Charles. He said, Humility is to make a right estimate of oneself. It's no humility for a man to think less of himself than he ought, though it might rather puzzle him to do that. That was Prince Charles years ago. I wonder if he realized, though, he was actually quoting the Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Who said, Humility is to make a right estimate of oneself? It's a right esteem of who you are. Humility isn't necessarily high self esteem or low self esteem, it's Christ esteem. Who does Jesus say I am? And how do I live that out? When Jesus humbled himself, as Paul writes in Philippians 2, what did he do? He he took his place, and he knew his place as appointed by the Father, and he embraced it. Though he was God, he equated equality with God, not a thing to be grasped and held onto and exercise his ego, but he humbled himself, taking the form of a servant to love others. That's humility. Uh, Some people think of themselves too high and, they think they have a position they don't, as I mentioned, while others uh, they struggle to step fully into the role they have, exerting a false humility. But true humility is just knowing your place. I like this quote, George Washington Carver, have you heard of him? Uh, African-American, he was a scientist who developed hundreds of useful products from the peanut. He said this. He said, "When I was young, I said to God, because he was a scientist, he said, "God, tell me the mystery of the universe." But God answered, that knowledge is reserved for me alone, George. So I said, okay, God, tell me the mystery of the peanut. Then God said, well, George, that's more nearly your size. And he told me. (laughs) (laughs) He was funny too. Well, as it relates to humility then, if if God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, and pride is really... uh, a miscalculation, ascribing a miscalculation of worth to myself, and if humility is knowing my place and embracing it before God. Let's talk a little bit more about humility for the rest of our time this morning, and to do so, I'd recommend to you a a new book, it was just published already this year, called Humility by Gavin Ortland. It's a short little book, really easy to read, Um, lots of white space in there, so if you like those kinds of books, like me, you like this book, but you can pick it up actually in the commons bookstore up by the cafe. Uh, we're selling them there for $10, which is our cost. If you got it on Amazon, it'd be about 13. Um, so you can get one of those. We don't have like a point of sale out there, but just these envelopes, you can uh, put your cash in there and stick it in a box. And if you're interested, you might pick it up. But uh, Orland defines humility as self-forgetfulness that leads to joy. That's another great definition of humility. In his introduction to this book, he rightly points out that uh, humility isn't hiding. It's not hiding, it's not hiding your gifts, your abilities, your talents. Sometimes we tend to think that's what humility is. Humility is also not self-hatred or self-contempt. Sometimes we think that's humility, that's just false humility. He also writes, humility is not weakness. Being humble doesn't mean you're weak. It means you know your place. He writes this, actually, in his intro. He says, we often think of humility as a somewhat dreary virtue. You ever feel that way? Oh, humility. Uh, I guess I gotta be humble. We know we need it, but we don't expect it to be much fun, he writes. (laughs) He writes this. He says, I remember hearing a a talk on humility at youth group. The speaker opened with dutiful reluctance. He said, I know we don't really enjoy this topic, but we need to talk about it anyway. (laughs) This is how many of us think, he says. Humility is important, but strictly as duty. It's like paying our taxes or going to the dentist. Interestingly, he says, uh, C.S. Lewis argued the opposite. To get even near humility, even for a moment, is like a drink of cold water to a man in the desert. Tim Keller preached something somewhere, there's nothing more relaxing than humility. As he explained, pride grumbles at everything, but humility can joyfully receive life as a gift. So perhaps we get it backwards, he says. We think humility is an impossible burden, but in reality, it's light as a feather. It's pride that makes life gray and drab, but humility brings out the color. I think that's a great statement. Uh, Humility then, it's the pursuit of joy. It's self-forgetfulness that leads to joy. Which means if if you want joy, do you want joy? I I do. It means killing your pride. If you kill your pride, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So if you really want joy, kill your pride and you'll get true joy. Well, uh, with the rest of our time, as we talk about what this means to kill our pride, so that we're not either eaten by worms like Herod or find ourselves eating worms like the one in the corner singing that song. Uh, Thankfully, Ortland actually has an entire chapter on killing your pride, and I'm just gonna shamelessly steal from it for the rest of the morning, sound good? So everything you hear here doesn't originate with me, but it's things that uh, I've been learning as I've read this book uh, a couple months ago. And uh, I think it's helpful, so I just want to share it with you. So we're going to work through it. He lists them in no particular order. We're going to move quick, but you can get more if you uh, decide to pick up this book. Uh, So first, one of the ways he says to kill pride is to work at listening. You know, and uh, he mentioned C.S. Lewis. In mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis gives a great description of a humble person. Here's what Lewis writes, he says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He won't be a sort of greasy, swarmy person who's always telling you that of course he's a nobody. Probably all that you're gonna think of him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He won't be thinking about humility. He won't be thinking about himself at all. It's a great illustration of a humble person. He pinpoints kind of just a refreshing quality of somebody who's humble. You know, they, they listen. If you wanna work at killing your pride and embracing humility, work at listening. You ever been around somebody who you can tell they're, they're just there, but they're really not listening? Have you ever been that person? I think we can all answer yes to both of those, can't we? <laughs> there's times where we, we know they're not really listening and there's times we know we're not really listening. <laughs> I know I can be both of those at times. But that person who's not listening, sometimes it's us, misses all the nuances. They filter everything you say through their categories and sometimes they just move on to something else or sometimes they jump to conclusions without totally hearing your point you might find it impossible to alter their perspective with new information because they're not humble. But humility is just the opposite. It's, it sharpens your attention to the vividness, Ortland writes, of what's around you, including the perspectives and thoughts of other people. To be an intelligent chap who really took an interest in what you said, as Lewis would say. That's why I think James writes this. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. It's wonderful to talk to a person like that, isn't it? And kind of the old adage you know, God gave us two ears and one mouth. So be quick to listen. That's one way to kill your pride. Here's the second that he writes Practice gratitude. Practice gratitude. Practicing intentional gratitude, it draws your attention to the blessings of your life. It really does. Even on the worst days, there are things to be grateful for. There really are. You know, a lot of times, uh, maybe we tend to see the glasses half empty, and we're, we're instinctively drawn to whatever it is we lack or that we don't have, I know if I only had this, then my life would be better. But when you intentionally practice gratitude, what happens? You, you start intentionally seeing the glass half full instead of half empty. And you intentionally rejoice in what you've been given, not in what you're lacking. And, and that attitude just, it changes life. I mean, there's, there's, there's actually physical, medical research that just shows a person who focuses on being thankful. Their blood pressure goes down. Their, their life is full of greater joy. Work on gratitude. Uh, God's word says this, uh, rejoice always. Always, pray without ceasing and in everything, Give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Here's a third way to kill your pride. Learn from criticism. Uh, I don't know about you, but do you like getting criticized? Me neither, it stinks. But do you know, if, if you take the right posture and learn from criticism, part of the reason, part of the reason I don't like to be criticized is because I'm proud, Right? Well, I got it right. What are you criticizing me for? Maybe you're wrong. <laughs> you ever, you, I don't think I've ever said that to somebody, but have you ever felt that? Like yourself? Maybe you've never said it either. but learn from criticism. Make it your practice to assume that even if it's totally off base, there's probably something there to learn from from it. Um, we can usually uh, learn from most criticism. Our instinctive habit, uh, Orland writes, tends to be to stiff arm and reject criticism because it hurts. And to be sure, there are some forms of criticism we should simply ignore, especially criticism that's hateful, dishonest, or demeaning. But most of it we can learn from. Even if they're mostly wrong, there's usually something you can get from it. The Bible has a ton to say about this. For example, uh, Proverbs 15, whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. Or the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man, he listens to advice. So when you find yourself criticized, learn from it. Ask yourself, what can I learn from this? A mentor of mine once told me, turn your critics into coaches. Turn your critics into coaches. Number four, we gotta move quicker here. Uh, Cultivate the enjoyment of life. That's another way to kill your pride. Enjoy life and cultivate enjoyment. You know, humility can fully embrace the proper enjoyment of all the good things God has given to us from food to sleep to sex to vacation to throwing a Frisbee to a walk in the rain to laughing at a good joke. Now, some of those things, obviously, God's given prescription for how those things are to be enjoyed, like sex and other other things, one man, one woman, one lifetime, right? But they've been given to us for enjoyment. Enjoy them. Enjoy life. Uh, As for the rich in this present age, Paul writes, charge them not to be haughty, don't be proud nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with how many things to enjoy? Everything, with everything to enjoy. You know, it might seem odd to speak of enjoying life as a cure for, uh, for pride and a uh, help for humility, but there is, there's this uh, profound association between enjoying life and true humility, of knowing your place. God's made us bodily creatures and so all of life is a good gift from him. It is. Uh, Those of you who read uh, Lord of the Rings, you remember what Bilbo does after he remembers how small he is and how humble he is? He enjoys his pipe. (laughs) He enjoys life. Embrace weakness. Another powerful way to grow in humility and kill your pride is to embrace your weakness. It's a profound way to learn humility it teaches us to rely on other people it reminds us we don't have to be good at everything because you know what you and I are not good at everything most of you are really good all of you actually are really good at something I'm not good at and that's if I'm if I'm proud that's a threat if I'm humble that's something to rejoice in it's wonderful to just be able to say you know what I'm not very good at that, and that's okay. And sometimes even to say, you know what, I'm not very good at this, but I'm gonna go ahead and do it anyway. (laughs) And that's okay. Embrace weakness. Paul also writes about this. He said, God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ will rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Recognize that you are weak at some things and it's okay to be weak at some things. That will begin to kill your pride and foster humility. Uh, number six, laugh at yourself. Now there's ways to laugh at yourself that should be avoided, right? I mean, humility is never self-contempt or self-shaming. On the other hand, there's a way to laugh at yourself that, that's really healthy and gives life. And if you, if you, if you can't laugh at yourself, uh, really, sometimes that, really that's, that's pride, isn't it? describing a wrong sense of worth to myself. Because you know, sometimes I do really stupid things. And if somebody else had done what I did, I would laugh. So it's okay to laugh at myself. Dio Moody used to say, be humble lest you stumble. (laughs) Laugh at yourself. Uh, Here's another one, real practical one. Visit a cemetery. You ever walked through a cemetery and read the names and dates on the tombstones? sounds a bit morbid, (laughs) but it kind of gives you a vivid reminder of something that's true. Everyone dies. Everyone does. And all of those tombstones represent real people who had real dreams, real aspirations, real fears, real goals. James says, what's your life that you're a mist that appears for a little time then vanishes? And Psalm 90 says, teach us then, God, to number our days so that we may have a heart of wisdom. But thinking of life as a mist isn't really a a sense of dread. It's it's actually a sense to say, you know what? Life is short, so enjoy it according to how God's given me life. Enjoy it. Here's another one. Study the universe. Did you get woken up by the thunder last night? Man, I did. There were a couple loud loud ones. And just thinking of God's power, of the fact that he is so much bigger, so much greater than us. It's just incredible. Study the universe. It'll give you a sense of your smallness like Bilbo. Then you can go enjoy your pipe as you reflect on that. If you really want a good example of this, get on YouTube and search for uh, the earth, if the earth was a golf ball by Louis Giglio. If the earth was a golf ball by Louis Giglio. Here's one of the things he says uh, at the 11 minute mark. He says, when you see this, I don't know what happens to you, but I'll tell you what happens to me. A shrinking feeling comes over me and it's not a bad shrinking feeling. It's a good shrinking feeling of just how big and awesome God is. It's worth your time. Uh, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Here's the ninth one, consider heavenly worship. If you ever find yourself, uh, Orland writes about this. He says, when I find myself struggling, like coming in on a Sunday morning to worship and to really engage, one of the things I do is I start to consider heavenly worship. And the fact that the angels right in this moment are around the throne worshiping Jesus. As Isaiah 6 writes, some of them are proclaiming holy, holy, holy is the Lord. If we had time, we'd go look at Revelation chapter 5, where they're, they're worshiping before the throne and worshiping God. Consider heavenly worship as a way to kill your pride and embrace humility. And then last but not least, bathe everything in humility. Um, as we wrap up, we're gonna celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So uh, those of you who are passing those elements out, I'm gonna invite you to do that now, just as we wrap up. And, and just know, uh, as we do this, uh, this is an expression of our dependence, our unity with Jesus Christ. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, let it pass by you. Um, it's, it's, we love you, we're glad you're here, but it's not for you. It's for those who've trusted Christ. It's a celebration of our unity and our identity with him. And so they're going to be passing those, I think, right now. Uh, I don't see any of those guys moving, but hopefully they'll start shortly. And if they're not going, I don't see any of them. So Lance, you want to take charge there? Thanks, man. And uh, we've got some elements over here in the back. We'll get those going around. But uh, we're going to pass those things to everyone now. And you can just hold on to them. We'll, we'll take them together here in a moment. But this idea of bathing everything in humility, uh, as we're considering that, there was an early church theologian, a guy by the name of Basil, quite the name, maybe it was Basil, I don't know. Basil, Basil, either one. But do you know where he was from? Caesarea. Basil of Caesarea, the same place where Herod, in his pride, was eaten up by worms and he's famous for one of his sermons about humility. He speaks of humility. And uh, one of his great themes in that sermon is that humility is the great opposite of the fall, the human fall into sin. Human fall was caused by pride and it resulted in our loss of created glory, but, but the return to God, a return to him is ultimately a cause of, caused by humility. Recognizing, no, we're not God. We need God. And we return to him. And it results in our heavenly glory. After speaking of the fall of humanity, Basil wrote this. He said, and now, his surest salvation, the healing of, of this wound, the way of return to one's beginning is to be humble. And not to think that you can ever, of yourself, put on the cloak of glory, but that you must seek it from God. God. Basil thought of humility like a medicine to our deepest and realest need, the healing of our wounds. That's why it's the pathway to joy. Uh, since the essence of all sin is pride, the essence of all progress away from sin has to be humility. Humility is the remedy to what is most deeply wrong with all of us our prideful sin so just like pride uh, infiltrates and permeates everything we do in our sinfulness we we should aim for humility to do that to know our place to bathe everything with this sense of humility so we're going to celebrate the lord's supper together here and and in doing so we're coming before god in, in humility saying lord Uh, Thank you for your grace, thank you for saving me, for Jesus dying on the cross in my place. I need you. I have my identity, my hope, my future in you. In fact, the the Lord's Supper is a celebration of the Passover. Jesus, when, when he celebrated it, the night before he was betrayed, he was with his disciples the night before he died on the cross he was remembering the Passover from the Exodus where God's wrath passed over every house that had sacrificed this perfect lamb and painted the doorframe of their house with its blood so that God's wrath would fall on that lamb and not on them in the same way Jesus is the perfect spotless lamb and if we would come to him in humility, God's wrath then would pass over us land on him on the cross in our place as we paint the door frame so to speak of our hearts of our lives with his blood there's freedom freedom from our pride freedom from our sin freedom to be who he's truly created us to be so as those elements uh, come around and they're just about there uh, maybe just take some time to think about that truth And then uh, the truth that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to those who are humble, who come to him. And so if you'd kill your pride, you'd get true joy. Maybe just ask him for help in that, even right now. And in a moment, we'll take these elements together. was betrayed. He took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is for you. So do this remembering me. same way also he took the cup after supper and he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood so as often as you drink of it do it remembering me let's take and drink remembering Christ Father thank you for Jesus thank you for Jesus, your great humility to come and to not equate equality. Your deity is something to be held onto and grasped and lorded over us, but you humbled yourself and took your place as a servant to us to die on the cross in our place, to give joy and freedom and salvation to any who would come to you in humility. So Lord, help us to live in that be killing our pride and pursuing the same humility you had and lived with and in so doing lord you give us life that's abundant and full of joy pray that for my friends i pray that for myself help us i pray in jesus name